This is Dr. B, and you're listening to SciTalk. My guest today is Dr. Bob Bartlett. He's a clinical psychologist in private practice in New York City and Westchester County who works with children, adults, and couples. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Dr. B. So what is play therapy? Um, what is What is it, and what's the age range of the kids that you use it with? Most parents ask, is it really just playing? <laughs> <laughs> the answer is yes, and yes, we do play. Sorry, don't break the ice. <laughs> we play with dolls and dollhouses, and, and it's more. Before I get into the more, the age ranges I see range from as early as three, and then I'll see children into their teens. I'm including the teenagers because they too play. Mm-hmm. They might start, start off talking and then they get off of the chair or the couch. Usually there are toys in the room or there are games that they see. And before you know it, one moment we're talking about dating or something rather serious. The next moment we're playing Uno. Not re- not too recently, I was uh, talking with a teenager about more significant school resistance. And then out of nowhere, he saw a bin of magnetiles and built this elaborate New York City apartment <laughs> that he's hoping to move into one day with multiple floors. Um, he said I could have one of the rooms. So I was very grateful. <laughs> And what's the type of play you'll do with a four or five-year-old compared to a teenager? It varies. So with children as young as four and five, it's usually symbolic or representational play, a fancy way of saying playing with toys, creating stories and narratives with toys. A classic example is using the dollhouse to enact a family scene in the dollhouse that I have in my office there are animals, there are people. Children can get very dramatic or they can stay very close to lived experience. I just had a young five-year-old enact coming home for dinner. Then the next morning after sleeping, being picked up by the bus, it just so happened there was a fire in the bus. All the children were evacuated and the firefighters came, put the fire out and then all the children happily were driven to school. So if we stick with that example, <laughs> is that can we assume that the child has had some experience in witnessing that or hearing that? And if not, how do you read that kind of scene? What are the different ways of interpreting that kind of scene that the child's enacting in the play? Mm-hmm. It could be that a child has experienced something that is enacted rather transparently in the play. Many years ago, I saw a young girl who had sustained a severe dog bite. We met for maybe four or five times, and the play was quite representational and very close to her experience of being bitten. And after a handful of sessions, she felt better. She had told her story and had the opportunity to process the trauma. There are other children for whom, let's say, a fight or a fire is representational of emotional states or even family dynamics. If we're staying with the fire, mm-hmm. we can imagine that a child is thinking about feelings that might feel out of control or hot. One feeling that comes to mind is anger. Mm-hmm. And maybe that feeling needs to be put out with a fireman's hose <laughs> and controlled before one gets to school. The place of rules, of rhythm, of routine, where children often work very hard to maintain their composure. 
And then when you have a parent who consults with you um, about a child, let's say, who's anxious or depressed, how do you explain how play therapy is helpful to a parent maybe who doesn't have much experience with it or doesn't, you know, sort of just thinks that talking about it would be helpful? Why do you need to play? Most parents are a little confused and it's understandable. I think as adults, we privilege talking. We might lose sight of the fact that playing is the language of children. In fact, the preferred language. If you give children freedom, they will play. The play is not unimportant. It's vitally important. Children use play to share their emotional concerns, preoccupations, and their feeling states. If a child is able to play in an open, free way, then usually we can offer the child the opportunity through play therapy to be understood, to be seen, to be heard, sometimes even without the word anxiety or depression ever spoken. Mm -hmm. And what I try to reassure parents about is that play is as vital and valuable a language to children as talking is to us adults. And I guess I take it you like to play. I mean, these are not kids who are playing by themselves necessarily. Like you, you must enjoy playing or participate in the play. I like playing a whole bunch. <laughs> <laughs> so I might go through a series of sessions with adults where I'm sitting in my chair listening to fairly serious material. And then the school hour um, comes around at 3.30 or 4. I'm on the floor playing with trucks with dolls, with stuffed animals. It is a fully embodied movement-based activity. I'm as free to use my imagination as a child is too, but I'm not using my imagination in a reckless way. I'm really trying to tune in to what a child is conveying through the play. And are you sometimes orchestrating the play? Are you structuring it? Or are you sort of just taking the child's lead? Like, how do you negotiate that balance? I'm an avid moviegoer. I love when the movie starts and I can surrender to the film. Some children play in that way. They come with rich stories ready to be played out dramatically with me in that situation, as I do in a movie theater. I sit back and let the child play. I wait for moments where there might be a pause, where a child might get stuck, or where it feels really important to convey to the child, I'm with you, I understand. I hear that that alligator, for example, was really angry about being bitten on its tail. <laughs> and then we go from there. There are other children who don't quite know how to play. I mean that quite literally. They don't know how to sequence their ideas or access the spontaneity that play requires. In that kind of situation, what I try to do is facilitate play. I don't hand down a script, but I might move the play one step ahead. So if a child picks up a bus, I might, for example, ask, where is that bus going? And if the child doesn't answer, I'll wonder, maybe the bus might go to school or pick up the children after school. I'll just wait to see if a child enters into that leapfrogging, you take a turn, I take a turn style of play. Sometimes in my um, past 
at places where I work with children who had more significant developmental delays involving um, social communication, speech and language, or motor skills, it was important to try and sequence and model that play. And after a while, under more ideal circumstances, the children would internalize that way of playing, and then they were off to the races, able to play on their own. And sort of to pick up on that point, if a child can't play, what are some of the developmental um, ideas you have about why that child can't play? You have to think very openly about what's going on with a child who can't play. Is anxiety stymieing a child? Some children are very inhibited. And for whatever reason or reasons, they're too anxious to let themselves play. There might, for example, be some kind of worry about coming near certain toys or forms of play. There was one child I worked with recently who was very worried about bees and being stung by bees. I happened to have a bee puppet, and the bee puppet in my room was something that frightened this child. And for a while, it took a session or two to reassure this child that she could indeed pick it up or play whatever she wanted. For other children, the difficulty in playing can be because they don't have a lot of experience doing it. They haven't had opportunities to play. I know it's 2019 and screens are a part of our lives. Um, but one of the challenges that screens present for all of us, adults, teenagers, and children alike, is that screens not only take our attention, but they take our time. They take an opportunity to play. So some children might not have practice, quite literally, with playing. And it can take a little while to set in motion a child's natural instinct and capacity to play. Another set of questions, if I'm in the presence of a child who can't play, involves, is it difficult for this child to play because of certain developmental delays? Executive skills, for example, in terms of organizing and sequencing thoughts, speech and language-based delays might make it hard for a child to find ideas and articulate them, not just verbally, but also through play. So much can go into why a child isn't playing. So my first approach is really to scratch my head and think about what's going on here? What is getting in the way of this child? I don't presume to have the answers. So after spending time with the child, I'll be able to form hypotheses that I share with parents. And they usually are quite lovely in being able to confirm or disconfirm any ideas or guesses I have. And can you sometimes tell when you're with a kid and you're engaged in play therapy, what constitutes constructive play and versus what kind of play may be unproductive? Is that something that crosses your mind or that you'll consider? Like what makes play useful? What type of play is useful versus a, a kind of play that um, is repetitious or doesn't really go anywhere or develop? There's some children who get stuck, whose wheels spin. The play may be non-productive. Let me give you an example. Yeah. Earlier on in my career, as I said, I spent a lot of time working with children who had developmental delays. Among those children were children we would now consider to be on what's called the autism spectrum. Some of those children didn't have the ability to engage in constructive play. 
I'm talking about children at age two or three who might be involved in rolling a bus or a car back and forth in front of their eyes at really close range. What we can do, and this taps into a very powerful model of play called floor time, is then really meet the child where he or she is, perhaps get our own truck or bus that we roll, and then try and intervene, try and interject ourselves with a very slight, gentle variation that then builds a different trajectory, different set of sequences that over time cumulatively helps a child who is stuck build a vocabulary of play ideas. Once a child has an enriched vocabulary of play ideas, they are then in a position not only to express more complicated ideas, but begin to connect play with feeling states. So the truck might become mad and crash into another car. It might help another car. It might stop before running into another car, really suggesting that a child is exploring different forms of emotional management or emotional regulation. That's one example. Mm -hmm. And you must value imagination and creativity since that's sort of inherently part of the play process potentially as uh, like an important ingredient in development? Very much so. I value imagination and creativity with adults when I'm talking with them. If I can play with an adult, just in terms of engaging in a long train of spontaneous conversation that might involve creative jokes or fantasizing or imagining what could be or what might have been, that feels very rich to me. Similarly with a child, if a child feels the freedom, the safety and security to play imaginatively, I know something is going right. I want a child to feel that unselfconscious freedom so that he or she can share whatever it is they have on their minds. Sometimes children, when they are that free and allow themselves that kind of liberated play, will bump into something that's a little scary. To go back to our example of the truck, the truck might run over a number of cars and then a child might look up at me nervously and stop playing. Then I know, based on the child's facial expression, body language, and the fact that the play has stopped, that we've collided with a feeling that the child might think of as a kind of third rail, something that's a little too dangerous or too hot to come close to. And that gives me a clue that we need to try and explore this in the language of the play, staying really close to the vocabulary of the play rather than my importing words from my adult brain, such as I think you were nervous or you might have gotten in touch with some anxiety there. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I try not to do that so that we stay very much within the play. And with a kid who's kind of lost in his or her imagination and very much ensconced in their own private imaginary world. Do you sometimes, are you concerned sometimes that the child um, becomes too encapsulated in fantasy and imagination and is not as connected to the real world? And if, if so, how do you try to facilitate that balance? I wait and see. Recently with one child, for the first three or four sessions, She told me about elaborate movie scripts she intended to play 
The scripts were very long. It took her about twenty minutes to tell me about the scripts. After maybe five minutes, the scripts became quite bizarre and went off in ten different directions. I couldn't make sense of it all. But by the fourth session, she moved more into organized play. Waiting paid dividends in this particular case because it helped me understand that the retreat into the fantasy of movie making and telling me about imagined scripts was protective. She needed time. She needed to find a way to feel comfortable with me, and then she was able into what we might regard as more mutual play that I could make sense of, and that could be shared in a way that was understood between both of us. With other children, yes, I do get concerned if the, let's call it, settling into the world of fantasy doesn't seem to yield very much. In that kind of situation, I might try, pardon the phrase, to butt in. Mm-hmm. I might try to make myself a real presence. Sometimes I might do that with a question about the child's experience. How was school today? I might ask, or you seemed really upset when you got into the waiting room and you couldn't have your snack right away. I might try to tack back to something that I know is real and important, or that we both witnessed and、uh, shared. After some time, usually children are able to toggle back and forth between talking about something that's very concrete and lived, such as school. And then back into the play. If fantasy play is repetitive, then I'll scratch my head and wonder what's going on. If it continues to be elaborated, continues to touch on really important feeling states or family dynamics or aspects of this particular child's lived experience, then I will leave well enough alone and let that play develop. For parents these days, one of the things you hear a lot are. You know, can you help teach my、uh, kids some skills, or give my kids some tools to work on their problems or their、uh, struggles? How does play therapy give kid a kid tools? Like, how do you understand that if a parent of an eight, nine, ten-year-old is looking for you know to give their child tools to manage anxiety, for instance? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We think of. CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, as the primary source therapeutically for teaching children skills. Most play therapists today use an integrated approach, where some CBT or skill building techniques are、um, talked about explicitly during the play. I am that kind of person. It always depends on the child, but if there is a time and a place. For me to talk about a skill that is more CBT oriented, I will. Let's talk about a child who's anxious. Since you brought up that example, yeah, I might talk about how deep breathing or body relaxation can be helpful, or I might remind a child that she has been able to make it through anxious states or anxious situations in the past. That helps teach a child something really important. Which CBT underscores, and that is that feelings are not forever; they are temporary. They are states that we pass through. That's such an important lesson, not just for kids but for us as grown-ups too. What play therapy can do is teach skills within the play. 
Sometimes kids in a very wise and genius play will come up with problem-solving solutions through their creative play. And I might stay within the language of play and talk about how, for example, that dog was able to calm itself down by going to another room rather than staying in that really loud room where it was barking a lot because it was really anxious and there was too much noise. <laughs> I might stay there. And then later on, perhaps during a pause, I might link it to the child's lived experience. Just like that dog, you too, I might say to a child, can leave a room if you're feeling that things are too loud. So I might go back and forth, either staying within the play or talking more explicitly about CBT skills. CBT skills come from the top down, so to speak. These are ideas that we really try to teach children are important to translate into their lives. It's hard, though, when a child is angry for her or for him to access those skills reliably. It takes a certain kind of maturity, poise, and a lot of practice. Sometimes skills are built through the emotional regulation that play therapy offers over time. Play therapy offers two absolutely wonderful developmental skills. One is the capacity to experience and better regulate feelings through shared mutual play. The other one is to develop social skills, being able to respect the presence and participation of another person, to compromise, share ideas, let someone else have his or her way before one takes a turn. Just to go back, I guess tools are more likely to stick with a child if they emerge organically within the language of play versus just explaining a tool to a child outside of play. I agree. Some children are very talented at hearing an idea and then importing it into their lives. For other children, it has to be more natural. It has to come through play. Sometimes play can involve role-playing. I might take on the role of the scared child or the child who is feeling sad because he or she is overwhelmed. In that kind of a situation, I can recruit the child who is my patient to become a kind of teacher. In fact, to become a kind of movie director, to give me lines to tell me where should the scene go now. And I can maybe in a whispered voice give some ideas and the child as the director might say, yeah, let's, let's use that. <laughs> <laughs> so there are a lot of roads to roam here. And I think a child therapist is someone who thinks about everything and the kitchen sink. We're very improvisational. We're always trying to figure out what works for this child, for this family? What is the language that's useful? Yeah, it definitely seems to require a flexibility and Very to tailor so. it to the child. So when you have a parent who consults you about a kid, let's say, who has recurring nightmares and is wondering about the best type of treatment, whether it's play therapy, behavioral therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, how do you determine what's the best type of treatment and is that even a necessary question in the beginning? It's an important question. I think one of the roles that we play working with children as play therapists is to think diagnostically. There are certain situations that 
I'm not sure I can help as powerfully as, say, a behavioral therapist or a CBT therapist can. A behavioral therapist with an oppositional defiant child can cover a lot of ground quickly through positive reinforcement, working with both the parents and the school. A CBT-oriented therapist might be able to cover a lot of ground very quickly with a child who is so anxious that he or she can't leave home to go to school. Sometimes we have to really acknowledge that we want to try and address problems as meaningfully and efficiently as we can. Behavioral therapy and CBT can offer wonderful paths to that end. If a parent comes to me and talks about repetitive nightmares, my first question might be, what are the dreams? Yeah. <laughs> At the risk of sounding like Sigmund Freud in 2019, <laughs> dreams can be important. Why? Because dreams can reveal what it is that is important to our internal lives. What are we preoccupied with emotionally? So if a child is dreaming, and let's just weave an example about fires, or let's say about a house that collapses, I might wonder in the first instance, to go back to the idea of hot feelings, about feelings that are complicated and challenging for all of us, anger, frustration, feeling overwhelmed, in the dream about a house that might collapse, I might wonder about how does a child feel about his or her body, about its vitality, its integrity, the house being a stand-in, for example, for a child's lived bodily experience. Or I might wonder about what's going on in the family. Is the house under tension, under stress? Does it feel like the house might break down? Because there's a lot of unspoken tension or even overt criticism and arguing within the house that the child is representing through the dream. Once I ask about what is the nature of the dream, then we can talk about what might make sense. A logical next move might be to meet with the child for what we call a consultation, a fancy word for meeting with the child a time or two, just to see what does the child do, what does she say, what does he play, where does the session go. Often children are very wise in an innate way, and in a session or two or three, they share what matters, they share what's important. Then I can circle back and let the parents know not only my impressions, but the communications the child shared through play. We then can brainstorm and collaborate as the play therapist and the parents on how best to address the child's anxiety. So a little while ago, you mentioned screens, and we might need another episode to get into social media. But just to go to that briefly, what do you do with an eight, nine, 10 year old child who brings in their phone or their computer and wants to play Minecraft with you or show you YouTube videos. Is that something you consider to be play? And how do you negotiate that with a kid where they're very attached maybe to their, you know, online life? And, you know, there's a lot of social interaction that takes place over, um, you know, through these games or text and what, 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 you know, what have you. So how do you manage that as a child therapist these days? What a complicated question. <laughs> <laughs> I'm old enough to say that I'm from the pre-screen age. When screens came on to 
uh, the scene. I was really confused and still am. To answer your question, what do I do? I'm going to confuse you. Okay, good. The answer. <laughs> The answer is yes, no, and it depends. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> so let's imagine a child comes in with screens. Let me give you an example of a child with whom I worked where he had experienced during the course of our therapy the very tragic death of one of his parents. He then developed a way of relating to his screen that involved receiving communications from other people. He developed a um, fantasy sports business online that involved receiving messages, yes, from teenagers, yes, from children his own age, also from adult men. And it was really interesting that this child had experienced the death of a parent, and I, I think it's okay to say it was the death of a father, and receiving these messages from men had a tremendous amount of meaning. And as we talked about this game, and his screen was out, at times my screen was out, checking on stats of certain baseball players, he then, from time to time, in rare but significant ways, would segue to memories about his parent. In this situation, the screen was this incredible portal to grief and to the resolution of grief. For other children who come in playing Minecraft, I might say something like this. I might say, you know, usually I don't let a child play with his or her screen. Show me, though, what you're interested in. I want to see what game you like. And with Minecraft, it could be, how do you like to play? What do you like to build? What characters do you really like? So I try and get a sense as to whether what is being built how the game is being interacted with, the characters that are being used, whether any of these things have any kind of translatable meaning that we then can use productively. There's some children who use screens to put up walls, to postpone, um, to really avoid interaction. In those situations, I might put limits on screen and not allow a screen to come into the playroom after a while. There are other children who they might do that at really critical moments. So a child might reach for his or her phone when we happen upon a challenging feeling or memory or experience, either through the play or in discussion. And then I might be able to talk about how screens can be a refuge for a child, a place that he or she goes to. Screens are as complicated as children. <laughs> we can't think of them as all bad or as all good. We really have to think about the meaning, the role that a screen plays for a child. Yeah. So the answer is yes, no, and it depends. <laughs> but the bottom line is I'm as confused as anyone, and I'm trying to make up these rules in this new world that we live in as uh, we go along. Those were really beautiful descriptions of play, and I want to thank you very much for coming on to the show. Oh, it's my pleasure, Dr. B. Thanks for having me. Okay. 